Hey, before we get started, I just want to really, really reiterate one of the announcements they had made for the the Christmas Eve services coming up. I'm just so incredibly excited about the different things that we're going to be doing in that service. Just really, really, some really cool things that are going to be coming up. Very excited about that. And so I just really, really want to stress that uh, the reserving your seats on the website, like reserving your seats online, really, really important because those services tend to be much bigger than normal. And we want to make sure, like, as you invite your friends and then invite your families to join you for those Christmas Eve services. We want to make sure that you're going to have room to be able to sit together. Um, So make sure you get on there and do that as soon as possible because I have a feeling the uh, services are going to fill up pretty quick and we want to be able to make sure we have all the accommodation and space for you guys as as much as possible as as we do that. So make sure to get on there as soon as possible. Um, And then also just another thing which they mentioned real quick, I want to make sure you all hear that uh, because Christmas Eve is right before the weekend, we're actually not going to be having services. I think it's on the 26th or the 27th that Sunday. We're not going to be having services to give the staff um, some well-deserved time off because there's a lot of time and energy going into those services and to give you time with your family as well. So just want to make sure that's on your radar. Um, So anyway, all right. Uh, I was reading this really interesting article the other day that I just wanted to kind of share with you and for you guys to kind of think through. Uh, Who is the keeper of the family stories in your family? Like, who is the go-to person that you approach when maybe a question about a relative or a story that happened years ago and maybe some of the details are fuzzy? Like, who's the person that you guys go to when you want to know more about a particular story? If I were to take an educated guess, and it is an educated guess, as I'll show in a minute, uh, I would guess that your mom is probably the keeper of the family stories, Your mother, or maybe your wife, is the one who remembers all of the details about Sarah's broken leg or Kenny's first fist fight at school and subsequent suspension. Uh, Mothers tend to be the ones who remember all the details of stories that are told and retold in in the family. I was reading an article not too long ago in Psychology Today, and it was asking, are there gender differences in telling stories? And of course, all the lots, they did multiple studies and things on it, and they found just kind of resoundingly, yes, there are big gender differences in the way that stories are told. And so these researchers, uh, they recorded families telling stories around kind of an average kind of dinnertime meal, recording the type of stories that were told frequently in everyday life. Things, you know, like, hey, remember when you, we went on that really scary roller coaster? Or, you know, Grandpa had that, you know, really big vegetable garden, didn't he? And so they saw that, you know, these were stories that everybody seemed to enjoy and were invested in telling or taking part in the relaying of the stories. But once the story started, they found in these studies that mothers overwhelmingly contributed more to the telling of the story than fathers or children. Mothers were especially likely to answer questions about extra information that maybe family members were wondering, you know, like, you know, like, yeah, that roller coaster was really scary. Remember how your sister screamed over and over again and you were making fun of her? Or, yeah, grandpa, he grew carrots and he grew beans especially. He was known for that. Like, do you remember what else he told you about the garden? See, everyone shares in the telling, but they found that mothers essentially provided the glue in which all the pieces would come together into a coherent story. And in doing so, they actually often would provide much more detail than would normally be given in the story. 
Now, the, the term that they gave for the person who is kind of the keeper of the family stories is a really cool title. It's called the kin keeper. Who is the kin keeper of your family? Kind of a cool title. Who knows all the family stories and can bring the pieces together? Now, it's important to have a kinkeeper because this was something else they found in these studies. The Family Narratives Lab showed that adolescents from families who tell and share more detailed and elaborated family stories show higher levels of well-being, they have higher self-esteem, higher social and academic competence. It says overall, they do better in life when they know their family story. So telling stories matter, and it seems that mothers, in many ways, make sure the family stories are getting told. Now, as it is for many people, my mom is the keeper of all the family stories in our family. She is what's called the kin keeper. I'm 37 years old, and I have never, ever talked to my dad about the day of my birth. Never asked him about it. Never asked his perspective, never asked him to tell the story. But I've had that conversation with my mom about the day I was born probably a dozen times. And every time she tells the story, I learn something new about it. I have a feeling, I can imagine, if I were to ask my dad about the day of my birth, probably what I would hear is, oh, I don't know, I just remember it being expensive. <laughs> but I ask my mom several times, and I get all kinds of details, like when her contraction started around 5.30 p.m., they just finished up with dinner, were just beginning to move the dirty dishes to the sink, and her contractions began. They took her to the hospital, and by 10.30 that night, you know, I was, I, I was a pretty easy laborer. Of course, she does continually mention my giant freak head, so that comes up every year. She's like, says she's thankful for me and thankful that I was born, but then always mentions my giant freak head, so I don't know what to do about that. And of course, my mom never forgets the detail, this is consistent in every single telling, that when she got back from the hospital two days later, guess what? The dishes were still in the sink. <laughs> like, come on, Dad. <laughs> like, you had like one job. She's just giving birth to a human. But no, you can't put away the dishes. Well, we're in this series leading up to Christmas that is celebrating the Christian season of Advent, which the word Advent literally means arrival. And this is why we've named the series Arrival, because this season is about anticipating and remembering the arrival of the Christ child on the earth. And so I just want to give a welcome to everybody here, whether you're here with us at our Effingham campus in person, or maybe you're watching uh, from our Newton campus over in Jasper County, or maybe you're from Shelbyville and you're watching over there. Regardless of where you're at, we're glad you're with us today. And so uh, excited for us to be together as we celebrate this idea of Jesus, who is God that came to be with us. And see, one of the many ways that Christians have remembered the, the story of Christmas is through what's called an Advent wreath. And some of you, depending on your tradition, grew up with something like this, where it was a, you know, a set of candles. Oftentimes, there's like a wreath around it or a manger scene in the middle, or, you know, different ones look different. But depending on your tradition, you grew up with something like this that, you know, for generations past where not everybody always knew how to read, oftentimes physical pictures or symbols were powerful ways of telling stories. And so oftentimes there were these visible reminders to let people know these are kind of the key, you know, points of the Christmas story. And so last week we looked at the first candle, and I'll go ahead and get it lighted, which is called the prophecy candle, or not. 
for a second I was afraid Van was messing with me. <laughs> One of those candles, because we, we talked about doing that to him, and I'm like, of course they're going to do it to me. <laughs> so we talked about what's called the prophecy candle, which focuses on the theme of hope, and how the prophets for hundreds and hundreds of years talked about the hope of Israel, that this Messiah, the Savior, would one day come and save them from their sins and usher in the kingdom of God. And so this week, we're focusing on the second candle in the story, which is known as the Bethlehem candle. And the theme behind the Bethlehem candle is the theme of faith. And so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the idea of faith Because what's interesting about, you know, even speaking of family stories before, uh, there are actually two accounts in the scriptures of Jesus' birth, one in Matthew's gospel and one in Luke's gospel. Now, Matthew's gospel focuses on the birth account from Joseph, the father's perspective, you know, the earthly father of Jesus, while Luke's gospel speaks of it from Mary's perspective. And not surprisingly, and this runs just right in line with all of those statistics I had said before, not surprisingly, Joseph, the father's account, is a whopping eight verses long. And Mary's account, 33 verses long. And that's not even counting all of the stories about John the Baptist and Zechariah and Elizabeth, you know, even extended family and what was going on with them as well. And so today we're going to focus on the events that led up to the birth of Jesus and the role that faith played in them, exploring maybe what that means for us today as we are celebrating and remembering and not just remembering the anticipation of Christ coming for the first time, but also in anticipating his second arrival when he comes again. So I want you to turn with me. If you have your Bible with you, it'll also be on the screen. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This is how the story goes. Or, Or not. All right, I'll just read it then. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus was the the Greek form of Joshua, which essentially means the Lord is salvation. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Joseph's story focuses, uh, uh, it moves a little bit more quickly than Mary's story because the circumstances of Mary's pregnancy are actually passed over fairly quickly, mostly because Matthew is primarily focusing not on the circumstances of her pregnancy, but on Joseph's response to the circumstances. He finds out Mary is pregnant and learns that it is, and obviously knew that it was definitely not his. And you can just imagine that type of conversation even happening today, like, wait, you're what? But it's not, wait, you said it's from who? who? God's. Interesting. And you can imagine what that type of conversation, and it's like, 
you know, how do you respond to something like that? And of course, unexpected pregnancies are not a novel idea, not now, not even necessarily back then. But what ups the ante in the situation is that it really was in many ways technically not Joseph's crisis. He definitely wasn't the father, so technically he had no responsibility to Mary. But this shows his character because he's faced with a situation where he could have easily saved face, which of course we don't live so much now in a shame and honor-based type of culture, but back then shame and honor is everything, so he knows this is not going to reflect well because, you know, people can do the math of like, wait, you said she's one month, two months pregnant? Come on, buddy. Like, really? Like, we've, we've been in situations where people say how long a pregnancy is and you're like, I'm doing the math on that and realize some of that doesn't line up with the wedding. And so they know there's, in that society, there's a lot of shame that could come with that. So he could have easily thrown her under the bus, but decides to do the honorable thing. He's like, I'm just going to kind of divorce her quietly. I don't want to subject her to unnecessary shame. In fact, even according to the law, he technically could have had Mary stoned for what would be considered adultery. But instead, he just wants to move on with his life until he has a dream. An angel appears and says, no, this, this circumstance, I know it's hard for you to believe, but is actually God's plan for your life. I'm doing something in the midst of this. This pregnancy is not another man. I know you don't believe her, but believe me, an angel of God. I love even whenever Mary is unsure about, wait, I'm going to be pregnant, but I'm still a virgin. How can I be pregnant? And like, how can this be? And the angel's response is, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Like, do you need more proof than that? I'm a stinking angel. Come to tell you, what else do you need? And so Joseph, he has this dream. And of course, Matthew's gospel quotes Isaiah 7.14, which at the time, in its original context, was actually not really considered a messianic text. It was a story about King Ahaz, the king of Judah at that time, centuries before. And Judah, the southern kingdom, was about to be attacked by the northern kingdom, Israel, who had made an ally of Syria, an even, more, an even more northern kingdom, that they were both going to attack Judah. And so Ahaz is freaking out, thinking, what am I going to do? I don't know what to do. And he's even wondering, do I make a, make a pact with Assyria, which was like the superpower at the time? And yeah, they would save me, but then I would be their vassal. I would be their slave. We would have to do whatever they tell us to do because we would owe them one. So do I reach out to the Assyrian Empire or do I trust in the Lord? Because Isaiah the prophet comes forward and saying, no, God is going to deliver you. You don't need to trust in any world superpower. And I love what Isaiah says. He challenges Ahaz in Isaiah 7, 9. It says this, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. I love that. I love that phrase. If you do not stand in your faith, stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And then he offers the sign, if he's willing to accept it, to confirm it. He says, a virgin will give birth, and this child will be named Emmanuel. Oftentimes people were named something to show a virtue of God, to show a quality of God that they were experiencing in the moment. He says the child will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because essentially what he was saying, he wanted Ahaz to know, God is with you. So you don't have to trust in any other power but him. 
You don't have to trust in your own plans. You don't have to trust in your own strategies to get through this because God is with you and he will be working with you every step of the way. And so this unconnected text is suddenly brought into a messianic light when an actual virgin becomes pregnant. And they say that you're going to give him, essentially referring to the Old Testament and the New, he's going to have two different names, Emmanuel, God with us, and Jesus, the Lord is salvation. God is with us, and he will save us from our sins. Both names express the meaning of this story, that God is present with his people. He doesn't intervene from a distance, but he is always active. He is always close, even if it is in the most unexpected ways. In fact, even in Mary's story, in Luke's gospel, the same promise is given because when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary to tell her about the coming pregnancy, this is what it says. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. To which it said, Mary was greatly troubled at these words and wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. And you got to wonder, did she have that Isaiah text in mind? Whenever the angel said, the Lord is with you, I wonder if she thought of that text. And so the angel was urging both Joseph and Mary to have faith in God, to trust that God is with them in every step of their circumstances, no matter how complicated, no matter how difficult, no matter how unexpected those circumstances might be. God was with them. But especially for Joseph, the dream he had was meant to tell him, hey, I just want you to know, God is with Mary, and he will be with you too if you have enough faith to stick around. Man, what a promise to every father who encounters an unexpected pregnancy. Can you trust that God is with you even when your plans are dashed and you don't know what's next? Even when you've maybe made mistakes— and your life plan has taken a turn. Can I believe that God is with me? See, Joseph was at a crossroads. Would he trust and stay with Mary, or would he run away, which maybe seemed easier, more certain? Verse 24 tells us the answer. It says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, see, here's the thing about how God works, and I've seen this in my life over and over again. Faith is about trust, not certainty. God expects faith, not certainty from us. That we oftentimes think faith and certainty are the same things, but they're not. Because the truth is, we are constantly confronted with the unknown. We are constantly confronted with uncertainty. And if you follow Jesus in life, I'm sorry. Actually, even if you don't follow Jesus in life, you are going to be confronted with uncertain circumstances constantly throughout your life. Unexpected pregnancies, job loss, world pandemic, political upheaval, death in the family, 
health problems. Life is incredibly unpredictable, and if we only move on in life when things are certain, you will never move forward. But see, the truth is there are some of you here today who have stalled out in your faith because of this very reason. You're waiting for certainty. You're waiting for irrefutable proof and certainty before you will even take a single step. But the truth is that rarely arrives in life, if at all. And so because of that, you stalled out. You're like, I'm just going to stay exactly where I am until I want, get this certainty that I'm demanding. See, this is what Isaiah was referring to when he says, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you won't stand at all. Because what happens is, as you begin to stand still and, and stop moving forward, eventually you begin to sit down. Eventually you begin to lie down. And eventually you give up. When we lose faith, we get scared. We're not moving to will, move forward, so we sit down, we stop moving. We're unwilling to risk or try anything. And see, I, it's funny because I, I see this differing dynamic even in my own daughters. At six years old, one of them needs to learn more and more about faith and trust because she is literally scared of everything. Like, it is her mantra. Anytime something new or unexpected or uncertain comes up, I'm scared, I'm scared, I don't want to, I'm scared, I'm scared. And it's like, like this summer, you know, just with everything shutting down and closing down and stuff like that, we didn't get to do swim lessons with them like we wanted to. And so when we were on vacation, I'm trying to teach them to swim, or at least some of the basics of it, in the midst of it, like while we're in the pool. And I'm trying to like, just like getting them to go underwater or even jump into the pool, even into the shallow. And oh, I'm scared, I'm scared. I don't want to. I'm scared. And the whole time I'm like, like, do you trust me? Do you know that I'm going to take care of you, that I'm, I'm going to protect you? You can trust me. Now, of course, my other daughter is the exact opposite. She needs to learn about caution and wisdom. Like, we were just at the park yesterday. You know, of course, you think, like, slides are for sliding down, right? Right? Supposedly. Well, for her, slides are about climbing up the outside of it. So, I mean, this thing goes up, you know, probably 15 feet, and she's like almost to the top of it, and like, because I'm like messing with one of them, and then I hear, Daddy, look, and I'm like, oh, Lord Jesus. <laughs> it's like thinking like, hey, going down the slide's fun. Maybe it's more fun if I go down face first, upside down. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. But see, faith and certainty are not the same thing. Hebrews 11 gives us this great definition. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for, assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now, the Greek words that are used here for confidence and assurance, neither of these Greek words have anything to do with, like, proof in hand. In fact, one of the words alludes to the idea of a will, like, you know, like what you're going to get whenever your parents pass away. You know, it's like me saying one day I'm going to inherit, you know, all of my parents' possessions, all of the guns and Longaburger baskets as I talked about a few weeks back. It's all going to be mine. Well, maybe half of it is going to be, I'll take the gun half and my brother can have the Longaburger basket half. But it hasn't happened yet. There's no, I, I've never seen the will. There's no money in hand. I've never, not even seen anything written down on the, you know, written down on paper. And truth be told, even the will could be changed if they wanted it to. But why do I have confidence and reassurance in my inheritance? 
because I trust my mom and dad. I know that they love me. I know that they want to take care of me. And they've promised that that is coming. And that's all that I need. So I have an assurance. I have a confidence in it. I know they wouldn't lie about it. I've never seen the will, but I don't have to. Them saying it is enough. And that's the same thing with Joseph and Mary. They knew God well enough walking with him that he could be trusted. And it was even by Joseph's actions that you could see this in uh, Luke 1, 34, 38. It says, Mary is stunned by uh, this angelic announcement. She asks, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. And I love this sentence. For no word from God will ever fail. Ever fail. And she says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. That should be our prayer. Lord, let your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Now, two things I notice in this. First of all, that first phrase, for no word from God will ever fail. Like, ever. Like, ever, ever, ever. It will never fail. For in a time of great uncertainty in the world, we can know that if God has said it, we can believe it. That's how we live as followers of Jesus, that if Jesus has said it, if God has said it, we can believe it. We need to recapture our trust in the word of God. His word is faithful to accomplish whatever it sets out to do. And I love one of my favorite passages is in Isaiah 55, verse 10. It says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. See, if God has said it, we can believe it. It may not happen the way we think it should. It may not happen in the way it sh we think it should or in the timing we think it should, but he will achieve everything he has set out to in his word, and we can believe that with total and absolute faith. And the truth is, there are some of you right now who you're dealing with sickness and chronic illness, and you feel like healing and recovering isn't even in the realm of possibility. And so this is the times when we trust in verses like Mark eleven twenty two, where as Jesus said, if we ask God and do not doubt in our hearts, he can uproot mountains and throw them into the sea. Nothing is impossible. That's a word that can be trusted. So we can trust to keep asking and to keep seeking or maybe you struggle with worry and anxiety, and it's inconceivable of the idea that the peace of God could reign in your heart and mind. But Philippians 4, 4 says that when we present our requests to God and dwell on things that are good and right and true, that the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That word can be trusted. We can trust passages like Matthew eighteen thirty five that when we forgive those who wrong us, when we forgive them mercifully, not conditionally, but completely, 
it opens us up to receive God's forgiveness as well. And on and on and on and on, God's word can be trusted. We can build our lives on it and trust that we will weather the storms because we've built our lives on the rock. And speaking of building on the rock, this leads to my final point. When we know, and this is what Mary and Joseph learned, when we know that God is with us, we can overcome anything that happens to us. Mary and Joseph, they each had to work through their own fears, work through their own insecurities so that they could journey with God to, I mean, get the idea of this. Like, Joseph is thinking about, like, social pressure because of an unexpected pregnancy, but God's purposes and plan for him was about them raising the God child. Like, put that in perspective. He's worried about peer pressure. God's worried about like the fullness of his deity being raised on that earth. And you can imagine Mary and Joseph feeling pressure around that of, are we the right people to raise the God child? The one who the fullness of the divinity was pleased to dwell in him, according to Colossians. There's some pressure there. We worry about messing up our own kids, and our own kids are definitely flawed. I can say that about mine. My kids are definitely flawed. So imagine how much more pressure you'd feel if you knew that your child was going to save the world from their sins. And see, I don't think it's a coincidence that Matthew's gospel, which starts with Joseph hearing that he would be father to Emmanuel, God with us, ends with Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew 28, 20, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, that's the promise of Christmas. That's the faith we can have during this time and throughout the entire year that God is with us and he has given us definitive proof through his son, Jesus Christ. The cross speaks a better word than any proof or physical evidence ever could that God is for you and not against you, that God loves you so much that not even death could stop him from being with you. And you can carry that into your life every single day. And so as you raise your kids, know that God is with you and you can overcome as a parent, as you build your business and provide for your family, especially in uncertain times like this, God is with you and he will provide for you every step of the way. As you struggle in your marriage and wonder if all the pain and all the heartache and all the hardship is worth it, know that God is with you and that he suffered pain and heartache and hardship as well, and he can help you overcome in your marriage. As you struggle to figure out what to do with your life after high school or college or whatever, and the uncertainty is uncrippling, know that he is with you, that he has plans for you. Whatever it is, whatever you need, he is enough. He's enough for you to overcome and endure and find victory today. God is with us through Jesus, and Christmas reminds us every year that he isn't going anywhere to the very end of the age. So you can have faith for the journey. Amen? Will you stand with me? And so, Father, I thank you. I thank you for the journey of Mary and Joseph who accepted an impossible task to bring the Savior of this world into the world to be God with us. 
to give us an assurance that God is not working in our lives at a distance, but is coming intimately close to us, to meet us in our mess. And so that we can have faith for the journey. We can trust you that the things you're doing in our lives are greater than we could ever possibly imagine. When we look at your word and we see things that seem impossible, seem unlikely, seem improbable, we can know and trust that no word from God has ever failed. If you've said it, we can trust it. God, as we continue into the Christmas season and and as we continue into a year that has been very difficult and another year which could be even more difficult, God, that we trust you, that you got us. You're walking with us and you're faithful. And so we put our trust in you. In Jesus' name.